Here we are, January the 10th. I'm a little, a little, let's see, collapsed into my system here. Maybe move this just a hair so I can get some room between me and the board here. January 10th, 2021. It must be 4 o'clock as my railroad clock just went off. January 10th, 2021. Lecture discussion number 126 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Okay, here we go again, off and running. Uh, well, okay, not running, a brisk walk, maybe. Maybe that's what I a slow, a slow slog. Most likely uh, it's a dead stop with a little bit of unnoticeable creeping. Think sundial. In any event, we are endeavoring to persevere. This is our second class back from the winter solstice discontinuance. And after every cliffside stoppage, whether it's snow or sun or holidays or Super Bowls or hunting and fishing, softball tournaments, whatever excuse we have come up with over the years, this is this is this period uh, that comes after one of those respites, respites that uh, that requires a little bit of overstuffing in order to return to the schedule, which is what I did last week. And that sounds great until everyone eventually realizes that there really isn't a schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a lesson plan. I was taught to do that by the Anchorage School District and the various private schools. I had to present a lesson plan. Most of the time they looked at my lesson plan and said, you got to be kidding. You, you can't possibly do this. Mm-hmm. And I would say, you're right. But that's what I'm going to try to do. <clears throat> I do sometimes I really do have a lesson plan. I know people think you, I don't. The schedule's figmental. I, I will concede that. Uh, some would say it's mythological, and I, I won't argue. But the, the lesson plan actually does exist. I want to have a schedule, so that counts for something, I hope. Anyway, as it was with last Sunday, uh, uh, there's going to be a bit of compression overindulgence, if you will, uh, that's going to occur again today. So uh, where do I start this? I get quite a few accusive responses that the book of Job is not germane to the book of Joel. In other words, they're saying, how can you add Job to Joel? It doesn't fit. Uh, I have Joel 2.32 to, as evidence to the contrary, but I won't get into that. And it can't be the case that they are separable in the sense that they are distinct. People who believe the Bible has separation in it uh, don't understand the unity. Scripture is one word. It's one entirety. And, and that which defines Scripture is this fantastic mathematical impossibility of interconnectivity. In other words, the mathematics of the interconnectivity of the Bible is uh, beyond our understanding. And all of that, uh, all of that interconnectivity testifies of Jesus Christ, of the triune Godhead, the nature of God, how He, how He is, His three that are one, the Shema, Genesis, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the revealing of the thoughts and characters of the Lord God Almighty of all things created. That's what the Bible is doing. It's a revelation from first to the to the end about who God is, how he how he is, and what he is doing. Therefore, Job is applicatory to Joel. It has to be. It must be so. There can't. It must be so. You cannot rip them apart and say this is this and this is that, and they do not have any uh, relationship. And since Joel is overwhelmingly in harmony with Revelation, because it is. Um, and Revelation crests with resurrections. That's how Revelation essentially ends. It, it reaches up into the resurrections. How many resurrections do we have? What's the order of the resurrections? I've done that lecture many times. There's five resurrections. And they go in a military parade style order. That's how the Bible reveals them. But anyway, Revelation crests with resurrection, uh, uh, resurrections and Job likewise ascends to resurrection. I said recently that the lesson of Job is resurrection. Forget, if you want to, if you get nothing else, just know that the point, 
the acme, if you will, of Job is the resurrection that is at Job 42. Then obviously, if that's correct, if Job is resurrection and Revelation is resurrection, it's transitive property. If Job is resurrection and Revelation is revelation, then Joel is going to be resurrection. And they're all going to be banded together. Job and Joel are banded together. Again, all of Scripture is banded to all of Scripture. And that's the definition of Scripture. That's how you figure out what Scripture and what is nonsense. There are all kinds of apocryphal books that they would like for you to put into the Bible. We obviously have a large denomination that has put all kinds of things in Scripture. Uh, they, if they do not testify of Christ on every single page and they do not interconnect all throughout the Scripture, then they are not Scripture. That's the definition. That, that definition plus the John 5.39 definition, it testifies of Christ. For today, let us apply Job to annihilation. What I mean by that is what are the theological implications of the doctrines of annihilationism. <sighs> that sounds really boring, doesn't it? I wrote it and it bored me just now. But it's quite important. The premise of annihilationism is that physical death extinguishes, destroys all information of a living being. Both the physical information and the spiritual or mental properties, i.e. the non-physical information. So annihilationism says that there is no information remaining from that living being. And obviously this position is, is nonsense. It's thoughtlessness. Note the irony, because thought is what? It's a mental or biological information. The people who think annihilationism is true are actually using information to make that conclusion. And there's great irony there, I think. Perhaps you don't. Inform uh, nonetheless, it, it is prevalent in our supposed academic and media institutions, both of which are neither academic or journalistic. Or journalistic. Let me just say something really fast. Those who are, because of the times we're in, those who hate this country relentlessly seek to destroy the country and Israel. That is their goal. They tell you that. When somebody tells you they intend to destroy, you should believe them. But that's again a digress rant. We have, we have media and academic institutions that hate horribly. Their, their hatred pours out of them. And it doesn't end. It never stops. And there is nothing you can do, in my view, to change them. Uh, there is something that is said of pathological narcissism or malignant narcissism. The last thing you should do is hope for change. And I think that this country is in a situation where there will be no changing those who hate the country. Uh, that's not a good place for a country to be. I asked a while back, I quoted a, a, a media personality. He asked whether or not somebody who despises the country could actually govern it. And the answer is no. And of course, there's no root, there's no, there's no desire to govern it. The, go the desire is to destroy it. And that is just the way it is. Welcome to 2021. I see everybody's really anxious for 2020 to go away. I'm not so sure that's wise. Again, I talked a few weeks ago, was it last week, about the variant, the COVID-19, the 501, uh, the N501, why did it, when, when did I do that? That variant is starting to show the ability to replicate because of its transmissibility. In other words, it's, it's, it is replicating inside the body because it binds. The affinity for binding to the ACE2 receptors are far higher because of how that is variant has modified itself. So it could be a very difficult time. We, we shall see. To keep bludgeoning the point, yea, a point, the lie of Satan is annihilationism. 
I'll say that over and over again today. Um, and now you ha- we have to deal with removing time from consideration. For example, concede for now that God intends to erase all information. Let's go ahead and allow the people that hate God and hate the fact that people are dualistic. In other words, there is a spirit of the breath of life and there's a physical body. Get, just go ahead and agree with them. It won't stop them. They'll still hate you. But let's go ahead, concede the premise, the hypothesis. Let's go ahead and say that God intends at some point to erase all information. Because that is what they believe. That is what they teach. Evolutionist says that at the instant of physical death, all information of you is erased. So there is no time consideration. But go ahead and let's add uh, uh, this aspect of it. Let's, again, uh, put time in a position where we can make an evaluation. Let's just say that God intends to annihilate, erase, destroy all information of every living soul or being after one million years. Uh, this would also eliminate all the information um, of, of everything that surrounds that living being. Okay? So, all, and uh, that would include uh, at, uh, cosmologically. We see photons of light. That's information. And we respond to that information. So to destroy a living being's information is to destroy the environment, at least the proximity that that living being is in all throughout its life. There's a tremendous amount of information that a living being accumulates. Okay, so if this were true, then what else is true? If we go ahead and grant this hypothesis, and I've done it in, uh, in arguments in the past a very long time ago, 30 years ago, grant the premise, if it were true, then what else is true? Immediately we should recognize that existence has been subordinated to time, the million years notwithstanding. In other words, you have said that time impacts existence because after a million years, we're going to destroy existence. And any vestige of it. So time, therefore, has authority over existence. In other words, the million years is irrelevant. If, if all things that are annihilated, extinguished, all traces of information are gone and lost forever, notice the forever aspect of that. That was not arbitrary. If all the information is gone forever, then all of these things that we call living, and I'm just using living for now, are in a temporary state. If I say a million years, end of this. We're in a temporary state for a million years. And so therefore, anything that's in a temporary state uh, are not measurable against infinity. Now, what does that mean? This is children all over the Internet are asking their moms, their homeschool kids, asking their homeschool moms, What's, what, what does he mean by that weird person? What I'm saying is that all temporary states are zero. Nothing. Zero is a concept, as you know, not a number. So all living states, all temporary living states, and that's a contradiction. It cannot be so. Living precludes temporary. But go ahead. Let's go ahead and have the argument or have the discussion. All temporary states are nothingness, which is zero. To illustrate the principle, it will be necessary to use your phones. Everybody brought a phone. By everybody, I mean Dave and Terry. That's all we got. Uh, It's a math problem. And those who said there wouldn't be any math, they're lying. There's always math. Math is always. There's nothing but math. That's, That's how it works. Get used to it. So we're going to divide one trillion by infinity. And we use scientific notation. 1 times 10 to the 12 divided by infinity. What is it? I will help you. It is zero. So if I lived for a trillion years and then I ceased to exist, and again, redundancy, I mean, uh, uh, contrapositive statement here. Contradiction in terms. If I were to live uh, 10 to the 12th years, 
compared to infinity, I have not lived. Uh, infinity also is not a number. It's also a concept, which is why both of them are so important. I did that a while back, didn't I? Zero came into mathematics, as far as we think, by the Babylonians. The Babylonians said, wait a minute, there's a, there's a placeholder here, a zero, third century B.C., and then it migrated across the world, India, Fibonacci, the Descartes, Newton, Leibniz, Leibniz. And, and obviously no one can manufacture, create, invent a concept. Zero was not invented. Humanity can really recognize or describe what they, what they see here. They recognized that there had to be a zero for mathematics to function properly. They didn't invent it. They, it was always there. Nothingness has always been there. Now it has a definition, and, and that's where we get the zero from. So humanity describes things that was heretofore unrecognized. Therefore, it was undescribed. <coughs> Excuse me. Thus, the most obvious of the obvious questions here is I have this fantastic relationship between zero, infinity, and time. Because that's what this equation is, right? This is the time. This is, of course, infinity, and that is zero. So I could, I could write it this way. Time over infinity equals zero. Doesn't look like a T, does it? Now it looks like a T. Um, so, whenever I get into these kinds of things, I always ask the same question over and over again. If zero is a concept and infinity is a concept and time is a concept, then what else is a concept? And the one that I always like to add the most because it causes the most consternation is, is gravity. Is gravity a concept? Uh, it's just something I do for fun. And I'll get into that as time goes by. Ha ha, time goes by. <sighs> All of these references. Okay. Where do I find zero infinity time and gravity revealed? Who revealed it? Because somebody discovered it. Who discovered it? Oh, wait, that would be Genesis. And Revelation, Exodus. Uh, and when you recognize that it, it, Genesis, Revelation, and Exodus, just to name three, uh, it's all over the Bible. The Bible tells us that there is zero, there is infinity, there is time, and there is gravity. And therefore that tells us uh, the originator or the origination of it it didn't come from a human being. It was given. It's a, it is information that was given. It flows from an intelligence, an intellect. And that intellect, as you know, Exodus uh, uh, 3, 1, 4, is the I am that I am. That's the one in the Bible that says there is these things. And as you know, the I am that I am is a pre-existent statement. It is saying that I am that I am. I pre-exist time. I am in the present, only in the present. Uh, that's I am outside of time. I have control of time. That's John 8, 24, 11, 25, Exodus 3, 14, Exodus 3, 7. Therefore, the concept of time has to originate from the one who discloses it. And the same thing for nothingness or zero from which all of the things that are created were created. Space, energy, matter, time, motion, all of those came from a conscious thought and an expressed a verbal word. From the word. And the word is who in the Bible? Who says that he is the word? He says he is the I am that I am. He also says that he is the word that spoke, in, out of, spoke from nothingness all that we have, the created uh, space, energy, matter, time, motion. The word is Jesus Christ himself, John 1, the creation spoken into being from zero, from nothingness. Again, a consciousness conceived zero that also conceives infinity. He says over and over again in Revelation that he is infinite. 
In the beginning, John 1.1, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning of time. Now, I've added that because I think it's absolutely appropriate. Don't don't beat me up for for doing that. Because beginning carries with it a time consideration, doesn't it? In the beginning of time, the Word was with God. Genesis 1.1. John 1.2. He, Jesus Christ, the Word, before, was before the beginning. So he is in the beginning. So he has to be, he is, uh, yes, he is within the beginning. And so begin to think about what that means. All things were made by Christ, John 1, 3, Colossians 1, 15, 17. All things are consisted in him. All things consist in him. That mean, that's a statement of infinity. How many things are there? And they have to be inside of him. There's trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. Billions and billions and billions of galaxies. All of it consists in him. All of that information. How much information is that? It's a statement of infinity. I've said hundreds of times that infinity must come from what? It must come from infinity. So the concept of infinity has to come from someone who is what? Infinite. Infinity descends uh, from infinity. And infinity, of course, can't descend. So that was a, a misstatement. But it flows from infinity. That would be better. John establishes that Christ began time. So did Moses. Again, moving things reveal time. So God, when he puts them in motion with his voice, first he creates them with his voice. The word creates them. The word. The word was God. The word is with God. Christ is the word. The word is God. God puts him into motion with his voice. This is the resonance, if you will, of the universe. Uh, there's been much, much experimentation uh, about is, is there a resonant frequency for the creation. And all of this we've discussed before. For today, consider that time descends from infinity. Again, not worded very well. As does will. Will has to come from will. Consciousness has to come from consciousness. Mathematics has to come from a mind. Language has to come from a mind. Whoever conceived the consciousness that installed time and motion must be infinite, must be forever, must be eternal. Otherwise, I end up with nothingness through my equation. That probably had made no sense to anybody yet. Yet it's a hopeful thing with me. So once you figure out that consciousness, the consciousness that installed time and motion conceived them must be infinite, must be forever, must be eternal, then you recognize that existence, existence cannot be within, cannot be inferior to time. Cannot be. It cannot be limited by time. A trillion years, I could have made 50 trillion. Change that, but I like ones instead of 50s. It doesn't matter how many, what number is here, 10 to the 50, 500. It doesn't matter. Whenever I put a a number on time, I have profaned it in the sense that I have profaned existence. Existence cannot be within time. Infinity is greater than time. Time is inside of infinity. So next question, is consciousness inside of time? Uh, I, have a, a fig, I don't have any friends, so I can't say I'm asking for a friend. Um, I have a figmented friend. And he's curious. He wants to know, is consciousness inside of time? Infinity and eternity are synonyms. Again, you have thesauruses on your phone. Look it up. Don't trust me. They're synonyms. Okay, to sum this up, information cannot be destroyed. So how is information created? What is the relationship between information and energy? Is information a property of matter or is it a property of intelligence? Pro tip here, mathematics says that information is neither matter or energy. It's not either one. 
So what is information? If, if it's not matter no, and it's not energy, what is it? What remains? What remains is will and consciousness. Information is alongside of will and consciousness. Isn't this fun? Everyone say we. Yay. Let the records show that they're faking it. <laughs> and yes, for those who wish to know these kinds of things, we are entering into the arena that is called the laws of information, the implications of biological information specifically. I should concede that there is no universal acceptance of the definition of information. No one should find that surprising. The, no, there is no, you get in the physics community, the biological community, the, the philosophical community, pick one, and they, none of them will give you a, uh, they don't accept any definitions of information at this point. Why not? Anyway, timelessness, will, and existence. Uh, information. If we or if any living being can be subjected annihilation, annihilated annihilationism, then we've never existed. No matter what the time period, we never existed. Uh, I said many, many years ago, uh, C.S. Lewis figured this formula out. He said, if H is not, she never was. So if you can be annihilated, you never have existence because existence has to be an authority over time in order for it to be existence. So we have this will and, 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 and this existence and they imply infinity in order for it not to be zero. I have to have infinity here. Infinity over infinity in order to have existence. So the Bible says what about us? We are eternal. And eternity, eternity must come from eternity. That's infinity and infinity. It's the same words, right? It's synonymous. Infinity, eternity. When God says, I am the eternal God, and you are also eternal. People ask me all the time, why is the lake of fire eternal? Because we are eternal. That's how it works. Well, why doesn't he just give up on judging the eternal being? Because that would be interfering with their will. And he won't. Because you have to have will. You have to have consciousness. You have to have eternity. Where do you find these concepts? They are in Scripture. So... It isn't about your eternity. I've said it many times. It's about your destination. It is where you are eternal. You choose your destination. He gives you that capability. Why does he do that? Now, I know, listen, I can hear the 40-point Calvinist coming after me right now. But the problem with that, that's a joke. Don't, don't hurt me. When you recognize will and consciousness and existence and infinity and zero and all of this stuff, you begin to say, wait a minute. Maybe Calvin, he called it a horrible doctrine. That was his first clue that maybe he should have stepped back from it. Now, I'm not. Uh, obviously, we have limited will, but we have will. So we're arguing over how much will we have, but we have will. There's accountability. If you take away will, you take away accountability. That's, that's Psalm 10. That's, that is a satanic conclusion. You have to be extremely con concerned about the lack of accountability and judgment. The Bible constantly says there's a great white throne judgment. There's accountability. That means there is some reason for that. Otherwise, you're, you're going to put God as the author of sin, which many people do, and that, of course, destroys his goodness. Any speck of uh, evil in him is overwhelms everything. And he has none. He says, none of this is in me. So anyway, the book of Job refutes annihilationism. The essence of the book of Job is the refusal, is the denial of the doctrine of annihilationism, or as it is more commonly known, the lie of Satan. And so that you start to see Job is set up from the beginning, Job 1 and Job 2, of Satan, God, and, and Job, right? 
and they are discussing annihilationism. And finally, not really a finally, it's just a fake finally. I have a fake finally here. Why did God wait until the fourth day to start the 7,000 year clock? Sun and moon clock. Why not the first day? Why not before the first day? He could have put the clock in place before, wound it and set it there, and then started everything. (coughs) Tickly voice here. I'm probably allergic to construction dust, dogs, and cold. Oops. I'm in big trouble then. Why did God wait until the fourth day to start the 7,000-year sun and moon clock? Why not the pick a day? Why the fourth day? Why not the eighth day? Why not any day? But he puts it on the fourth day. Why is he, what's he thinking? And, and here's another finally. This is finally number two. Job chapter 1 and 2 and 42. I just consolidated the main three. The whole book of Job. But I'm going to consolidate those three. That's Job, Satan, and God. That is commentary on Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 4. Genesis 3, 4 is also annihilationism. And so both of those attack what Satan has presented. To repeat, note that Satan is allowed to kill Job's children and servants and animals. Uh, What's God's solution? You killed him. What's he going to do? Oh, nothing. No, what does he do? And again, this is why Job 42 is so important to understand. When God says restore, what does he mean? New stuff? No. Old stuff. Made new. It's different. There's a, a distinction, a great difference there. His solution to Satan's killing is to resurrect those who he killed. And I submit that that is the only biblical solution is resurrection Uh, omniscience makes it so because that is what Christ is doing I am the resurrector I am the resurrection and the life so that means it's the only solution if there was any other solution then then omniscience is off the table and he says that he is omniscient in Revelation 11 Satan man kills Moses and Elijah. How does Christ, who is in the whirlwind, who is in the pillar of cloud, what does he do? Calls them up. He resurrects them. The resurrection and the life responds by by restoring life, returning life, and resurrecting the body. That's It's a reversal of, of Genesis 2-7. He reverses it. He is about that. That's what he's doing. And Okay, another finally. Can I have an eternal finally? Yeah. A finally that never ends? <laughs> So I have, I can have infinite ending. You seem to be doing that question. <laughs> Let the record show that that the uh, the congregational uh, entity here says that I I have a tendency to never end my findings. That's very funny. I should have recognized the retort when I asked the question. I need to learn to be better at this. <sighs> he searches the mind and heart. He says so. Revelation 2.23. That's what he does. The body is has the, the brain and the heart in it. But he searches the mind for information. And the mind, of course, is not physical. And he searches the heart, which is physical. And the heart is connected to the brain, efferent and afferent and all of that stuff, right? The neurological cardiology. Ah. So what is he searching for? I've asked that all the time. He is searching for information. He's gathering information. What's he going to do with the information? He's going to bring accountability. It's evidentiary. It's a judicial procedure, the great white throne. He's the judge of all things, John 5.22. He is the ancient of days in his throne room, Daniel 7. Okay. All of that annihilation discussion, besides being boring and drool-inducing and cure for insomnia and all of that, actually it's going to lead to something worse. It's going to lead to matter and antimatter. Yeah. Yeah, it is definitely worse. (laughs) I got a letter 
Um, uh, let's see, I didn't do a good job of reading it. I know whenever I do matter and animate matter, uh, and I'm going to get into what's called chiral. I brought this up. I didn't really. Chiral anomalies. Anomalies. Okay. I got a letter. I didn't do a very good job of reading it because I didn't have the time. I don't have the time today. But this was from Luke, and Luke uh, wants me to call him. And I will, Luke, at some point. Um, I've just been incredibly busy. And, uh, and I have so much that I'm, I'm dealing with. Um, it's just, this is such a fantastic letter. I, I have no place to start because it all needs to be read. But I, I don't have time. I'll just keep picking at it over the weeks. I'll get to my reason for writing, he says. Besides letting you know that I'm still out here. He's in Ohio. My daughter and I were watching a PBS special dealing with quantum entanglement, which went into the history of Einstein and Planck and featured an experiment where photons in two separate quasars were being measured to try and bolster the data submitted from the initial experiments that seemed to indicate entanglement. And it got me thinking about your lectures on the subject. Uh, I remember the interferometry discussion in Heisenberg, and I think I have a loose grasp on how observation, how, how observation causing, and on how observation causes the collapse of probability waves, and how that relates to the free will omniscient debate. But I feel as though I'm lying in a cloud of freshly disturbed dust, trying to peer through as the bus driver drives erratically out of view, mm-hmm. and when it comes to the theological implications of entanglement. I, I, I'm going to say this. I'll just really fast. I just said it earlier. If you want an example of the theological implications of entanglement, here it is. Uh, um, I also wanted to know if chiral anomalies were simply another manifestation of quantum uncertainty or if you thought they had implications of their own. Um, what a, an incredible letter. If we were back in a building where I had lots of people, I would make copies and I would send it out to all of you because this is the traditional, if not absolutely, um, how do I put it? This is the typical cliffside listener. <laughs> I am so proud. I, it's like I have little children. This it can't get any better than that for me, and I'm just so thrilled. Antimatter, okay, and matter. That's where we have to do antimatter. It goes in order. So it goes antimatter and matter, and then I can get into chiral anomalies. If, there's an, if I try to go it out of order, it would just make a mess like I usually do. But antimatter was predicted or predictive. It's postulated to exist. In other words, it was a thought experiment. I won't get into who did it. It happened in the 1930s. Man won a Nobel Prize. The Rock. And it's under the assumption that Einstein's formula, E equals mc squared, okay, uh, was valuable for making bombs. That's called the mass-energy equivalence formula. That's what that is. Because, you see, if a particle, say an electron, let's just take an electron, has an antiparticle, and that's what we're talking about, is particles and antiparticles, or matter and antimatters. E equals mc squared. Can you not see? I got it. Okay. C is, is the speed of light. E is energy. M is mass. Um, uh, so if I have a particle, an electron, and I have the antiparticle, they have decided that the antiparticle will, will be, cause, be, be called a positron. In other words, an electron with a positive charge. So I have an electron with a negative charge, I have an electron with a positive charge, and if one could can collide the electron and the positron, that would result in annihilation of the electron and the positron, and it would release energy, pure energy. And that's assuming, of course, that the electron and the positron... Do I need to move? Go this way? And that would assume that the electron and the positron are identical in mass, so that there isn't any mass left over. So I've had two things of equal mass, and they hit each other, and they are opposites. One is matter, the other is antimatter. One is electrical charge, the other is a positive charge, and they strike each other and collide. Uh, they would annihilate. 
and that would result in a explosion because it would release energy. So this is how all of this began. Uh, and the bigger the mass of the particles, so if, if I had if I had more mass and of electrons and more mass of positrons and I collided them, I would have exponential energy released. As we know from the hydrogen bomb explosion, we would reproduce the function of the sun on Earth, which we, the mankind has been able to do now since the 1950s. So that's extraordinary understanding. Unfortunately, actually it's probably fortunately, antimatter seems to be missing from the universe. Well, we can't find it. Why not? Matter is to be found, but matter, antimatter not so much. This is the matter-antimatter asymmetry in, in physics. Lots of matter. Antimatter? Well, they, they try to make antimatter. Now they've got up to, they've got a few minutes, maybe they've got past that now, but they've got a few minutes of antimatter before it, it, it disintegrates. Uh, and anything that creates energy, of course, has uh, fantastic potential. You need energy in spite of the, the popular ecological assertion Windmills, batteries, uh, solar panels are not going to produce enough energy to keep anybody alive. You have to have combustion. If you could come up with an antimatter-matter generation system producing enough energy to turn a generational uh, electromagnetical generator, then you have energy that is unbelievable. So that's part of it. And that, of course, was for me. He, he came up with a nuclear reactor for the purposes of making energy. And we made bombs. Yeah. But anyway, we have matter-antimatter asymmetry in the creation. It's an unresolved issue in physics and cosmology. Why is there no equality for matter particles and antimatter particles? Because there isn't in the creation. And that's the question. And everyone by everyone, I mean the physics community, this is theoretical physics, right? That's what we have here. They make a prediction, a postulation, and then they go about trying to see if they're correct. They theoretically predicted an antimatter particle for every matter particle. And that would mean that there's an accompanying annihilationism or annihilationing. And it's not happening. There isn't uh, annihilationing. Now, annihilationing is not a word until now. I, I like the word annihilationing. I've practiced it. So we're putting annihilationing into the into the arena. Now, I suspect it'll take way off, and I of course have the trademark, uh, and I expect to reap incredible financial benefit of at least a dollar. But the word Neanderthalics will insist on annihilating, so you know. But I think annihilationing far superior, far more robust. Why wouldn't we go that direction? Okay, moving along. What happened to Job's wife? She says, curse God and die, Job 2.9. What's this stuff about the unnamed prophet, First Kings 13, the withered hand? What happened to the Luke 10, 1? What happened to the Luke 10, 1, 2 by 270? Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. On the surface, being a lamb among wolves doesn't sound like a great plan. But that's what Christ did. And, and obviously, behold, I send you is, that means something really amazing is going to happen at Luke 10, 1. It's a great doctrinal truth about to be revealed. What is that great doctrinal truth? Uh, what might be, what is he, what is the meaning of the sent 70 of Luke 10? I got that question. So all of these are questions that I've accumulated in the, uh, in the sabbatical of the winter solstice. What's the Old Testament complement of the sent 70? Didn't Christ send the 12 apostles, Matthew 10? Well, yeah, I just answered that. He did. What's the differences? The Luke 10, 70 cannot be hurt, Luke 10, 19. That's another behold. You're not going to be hurt. Satan and his forces cannot impede the 70. Nothing shall by any means hurt you, Christ says. How long did that stay in effect? 
that's almost in, that's indestructibility. That's immunity from anything and anyone. That reminds you of Revelation, where we have 150 days and nobody can die. That reminds you of the 144,000. That's the two witnesses. I got 70 of these people. What happened to them? I want to know their names. Did they mess around with each other, hit each other with bricks to see how this worked? Did they jump into the water? Did they jump off of cliffs? I mean, if you had immunity, nothing, nothing shall by any means hurt you. Lightning? I mean, again, how long did it last? What happened to them? Are they still around? Do you know the Apostle John theories? I don't know if you've all gone to read those things. They're amazing. The people have thought that Apostle John never died. And he's walking around. Well, has he got 70 people keeping him company? Is it one great big gin rummy game somewhere? Are they hiding? No, nothing by any means will hurt you. The instructions given to the 70 are especially puzzling. Therefore, something amazing is hidden there. We, we've got to investigate. It's certainly what we should do. But we're not going to do it today. We're going to begin with what's equally mysterious, the unnamed prophet of 1 Kings 13. I started my so-called career with this. We've got to read a little bit of it. It is... I don't even know how to describe it. The more I read it, every time I, I, I do it, I... I'm just stunned at what's here. Uh, And I think you will be too. So we're going to read just one or three or four verses here. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So I got a man. I got sent by God from Judah to Bethel. I got Jeroboam, who's obviously in Bethel. And he's standing by by an altar and he's burning incense. Then he cried out against the altar. That's the man of God that did. Um, by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. And men's bones shall be burned on you. So he's talking to the altar of Jeroboam. <coughs> As if it's got cognitive capability, consciousness. He's treating it like a person. And verse again? Uh, uh, chapter First thir- Kings thirteen one through three. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, "This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out." I'll go with four. And, and five. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the sayings of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying arrest him. Then his hand which he stretched out toward him withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar was also split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And then, of course, Jeroboam asks him for something. We'll get to that in a minute. So what do we got at this point? Yea, a point. Behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel. Why is that a behold? Because that's a behold. And whenever you see a behold, there's two beholds. Whenever you see a behold, you know you got to stop, figure out why is that a behold. We'll ask the question another way. Why did God send only one man from Judah? What's Judah with respect to Bethel? In other words, why didn't an army come out of Judah? Army didn't come out of Judah, sent one guy. Against a king who had an army. Judah was still loyal to the house of David and therefore Solomon. Jeroboam, if we're to read 1 Kings 12, made two golden calves. So not one golden calf, Exodus 32. Hey, obviously, he, he intended to reference Exodus 32, but he makes two golden calves. Huh. And at 1 Kings 12.32, so you go back up to chapter 12, um, you'll, see that Ex, uh, you'll see that Jeroboam sacrificed to the two calves on the altar that he made at Bethel. So now here we are at 13, and this man comes from God, and he... Stops it. 
Why did Jeroboam make an altar at Bethel? He could make an altar anyway, but he anywhere, but he picks Bethel. Why? He does two calves. Why? In the backstory, it's important to know that Israel is divided into two kingdoms. I have Judah and I have Israel. The man came from Judah. Bethel is in Israel with Jeroboam. So he came from the house of David, Jerusalem, and he comes up to Bethel. So the ten northern tribes are in the territory of Israel. And a a man came from Judah. The king of Judah was Rehoboam. The king of Israel was Jeroboam. So I have two kings. One is uh, attached to Solomon. The other is not. Actually, uh, spent some time in Egypt. He became king after they called him back from Egypt. So a great deal more to include here, but that, that right now that we're going to have to stop kind of suffice with that. The unnamed prophet, they don't name this guy. He's unnamed. No one knows who he is. They speculate as to who he is, but he is not identified. Why not? I have an unidentified man of God, and Jeroboam are both at an altar with two golden calves, and Jeroboam is burning things, burning incense for certain. Obviously, Jeroboam understood the meanings of the golden calf of Exodus 32. And we should also know what those meanings are because he doubled the meaning. He has two golden calves. Aaron only had one. That didn't go well, did it? Anyway, the man of God from Judah cries out against this altar as if it has consciousness that Jeroboam is sacrificing upon. And to repeat, God sees it necessary to send this unnamed prophet to Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month. You get that again out of uh, chapter 12. Not the 7th month. 15th day of the 8th month. What's on the 15th day of the 8th month? The 15th day of the 7th month would have been the feast day of tabernacles. But God sends this man on the 15th day of the 8th month. Because that's when Jeroboam is doing this. Why is Jeroboam doing something with two golden calves and an, and an, uh, an altar uh, on the 15th day of the 8th month? Again, Jeroboam knows things. This is not arbitrary. This is not coincidental. These are selected things that have meaning to Jeroboam. He's doing something. And we should know what Jeroboam knows. The man of God speaks to the altar. O altar, altar, thus says the I am that I am, the tetragrammaton, uh, the Y-H-V-H. Get better, let's draw a better Y. Okay, that is capital in your Bible, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the I am that I am. I see the time, thank you. Ah. I'm, I'm going to make it. I could stop right now. Like I could just kind of mess around because I got it made. The man of God speaks to the altar. O altar, O altar. Thus says the I am that I am. Behold a child. McFly. Behold a child, Josiah shall burn the priests of the pagan high places on this altar, and the altar shall be split apart, and their and their ashes poured out. Now, why do you suppose the unnamed prophet said a child, Josiah, shall be born? Let's go just with child born, a child born. And he names the child, Josiah. The unnamed names the child. Whenever I see naming, where do I go? I'm back to Genesis, aren't I? I got naming going on. Names have meanings. So I have this relationship between the unnamed uh, prophet and Adam. I got to say, ask myself, does that does that show up anywhere else? What do you think? So he names the child Josiah. Josiah said, means Y H V H. The I am that I am supports. That's what it means. The I am that I am supports. God would be with Josiah. Josiah would burn the Baal Moloch priest, Leviticus 18.21, because that's what's going on here. In other words, the child that is born would come and burn the ones who are doing what? Burning the children. 
So that's why a child is born will come and burn you. And not only will, will the child burn the, the, the priest, but he will burn everyone in any relation to them. And I should interject that the altar, uh, the, and did I mention that, uh, I didn't. I'll wait. Right now would be a place to interject the altar with no steps. That's called the law of the altar, which is Exodus 20, 22 through 26. Moses was commanded to build an altar. He was commanded to build the altar subsequent to, uh, to the issuance of the Ten Commandments. So give out the Ten Commandments and then build an altar. So what do we know? In other words, the commandments of God, the Decalogue is given, and most scholars ignore the altar. They don't see the relationship between the Ten Laws and the altar that has no steps. See, God connected them. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the altar with no steps. Did Job Jeroboam understand that? Jeroboam has an altar, and his altar is going to get split. So what's what's going on here? Did Jeroboam understand the meanings of the altar of unhewn stone, the altar of earth, the altar with no steps? Did he understand it and build an altar with two golden calves? I think the answer is obvious. Exodus 20.23 is plainly said by God. He didn't equivocate. This is the, the law of the altar. You shall not make anything with me gods of silver or gods of gold. Don't make any golden calves. Don't put them on my altar. Don't make an altar like that. You shall not make for yourself. Genesis twenty twenty five through 26 If you use your tools on my altar of stone or altar of earth, you have profaned it, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. You're naked. What's he referencing? Nakedness goes where? Nakedness may not be exposed. Don't expose your nakedness. Where are we? Genesis. Genesis 3, 7, 3, 10. Obviously, the altar of God, the altar of stone, the altar of earth that doesn't have any steps, it can't be touched by a tool or it's profaned. That refers to Adam. Uh, because Adam covered himself. Again, Genesis 3, 7, 3, 10. Fig leaves, the curse of the withered fig tree. Matthew 21, 19 through 20, which we did a couple of weeks ago. The withered fig tree, in case you were... Uh, wondering fits with 1 Kings 13 because of the withered arm. All things withered go back to the withered fig tree of Matthew 21, 18, 19. Okay, where was I? The child born of the house of David. Clearly Christ is being announced here, isn't he? He is the child born. That's the book of Isaiah. Josiah is a portrait of Christ. Duh. The altar of Exodus 20 is also portraying Jesus Christ. He is the unmade altar, isn't he? That you can't go up there or you will profane it. You, you can't make him. He's unmakeable. Uh, so that's obviously Christ. Now there's a portrait of Adam in there as well, as we would expect, uh, Romans 5.14. So... Find Christ on every page as we're supposed to. That's the order, 539 John. Search for that which testifies of him. That's our charge. That's our, that's our job, Job. Okay? That's what we do. First Kings 13 begins with the man of God from the tribe of Judah who is not named. That's Proverbs 30 verse 4. No one knows the name of Christ until it's revealed as salvation, Yeshua. That is the mystery of Agar, Proverbs 34. So the unnamed man is clearly a portrait of Christ. And he cries out to the altar. He declares that the child born of David and names the child God supports. Um, so all of that is, is, I mean, that's quite the beginning. That's what he does in the first, what, uh, three verses. Let me repeat it. He declares the child born of David. He names the child God's support. He cries out to the altar. It's, in other words, the first three verses of First Kings 13 is just, just soaked in portraits of Christ. 
And Josiah comes 300 years later. Now, people will argue with me about that. But I think it's obvious that it is exactly 300. There's some argument Josiah becomes king at 8. At age 18, Hilkiah, the high priest, finds the handwritten manuscripts of Moses. So they find the book of Moses in the temple. Huldah, the prophetess, is involved. Lots of moving pieces to Josiah. Solomon, Moloch, Baal. There's tombs. Josiah was amazing. Uh, he should be the example of, of godliness given to our children. He was amazing at age 18. Absolutely astonishing. He was amazing when he died in, in battle. For today, just go ahead let me have my 300 years. If the 300 years is exact, and I think it is easily determined to be exact, we need to apply 300 years to Christ because Josiah has a 300. Christ is going to have a 300. So where's the 300 for Christ? King Jeroboam hears the man of God. He orders him arrested, which means a death sentence. Arrest him means kill him. That's Go ahead, cross out arrest and write in kill him. You don't come here and make a mess out of my little operation without me killing you. And Jeroboam's altar, though, is split apart, 1 Kings 13.5. His hand is withered, 1 Kings 13.4. Uh-oh, rot row. Many questions. What was Jeroboam burning? Better question. Who was Jeroboam burning? I've already intimated and implied that these were children being murdered on this altar. That's, I think it's obvious when you see what Josiah does uh, in 300 years. The two golden calves. Whose children are they? They're somebody's children. Where'd they come from? Again, this Baal, Moloch. Why is Jeroboam doing this? What's his motivation? This is evil. This is vile. This is evil to the level that God detests. But it goes on for 300 years. Political commentary here really fast. The slaughter of children will bring the wrath of God. Eugenics. are The eugenicists have been killing children for almost a century in this country. They're going to pay an eternal price. Uh, the wrath of God is the lake of fire. When he says the wrath of God, that's the lake of fire. Mankind has continually gravitated towards murdering children in a religious fervor almost. It's, all, it's identical, frankly, to Jeroboam. They celebrate the killing of children. They extol it. They're jubilant over it. They parade it. They're thrilled by it. Um. And make no mistake, there's a sacramental element of the killing of children. It's always there. However disguised, God being omniscient will not be deceived by all of the euphemisms. Uh, all the excuses, all the justifications, all the rationalizations, they're not going to be considered at the great white throne. The wrath of God, the lake of fire awaits. It is a horrible thing to be cast into the lake of fire and that's but to repeat why is this happening why killing children sacrificing children why what's causing this Satan inspired it I guarantee it but why did he inspire it looks like now we're killing old people with this this pandemic but why killing Jeroboam is standing there again with a withered hand his altar destroyed ashes which is what information you're right you can burn it. You can't destroy it. That's evidence. And that when he splits the altar apart, when, the man, when God does it, the man of God said it's going to happen. God does it. Those ashes pour out in front of everybody. Those are the ashes of living beings. A great sign of ashes pouring out. What is the meaning of that sign? There's two signs here. There's a split altar. There's a poured out ashes. What do they mean individually? And how do when we collect them, what do they mean? Next, Jeroboam begs the unnamed prophet to restore his withered hand. Kill him. Uh-oh, fix my hand. Pray for me, he says. Pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. He couldn't pull his hand back. His hand was withered. He couldn't pull it back. Who had to pull it back for him? God. What's that mean? The ham arm is stretched out. Jeroboam could not pull it back. That happens again in Mark 3. Christ, in Mark 3, 
is referring to 1 Kings 13. What does it mean? A prayer, a mediation must be given to God to pull it back. And Jeroboam knew that. He asked immediately, uh-oh, fix it. Ask God to fix it. And God fixes it. And Christ fixes the hand of the Pharisee in Mark 3. Why does he do that? I should stop now, huh? The alarm went off. Coming next week is the connecting of the unnamed prophet's death to the death of Adam and Moses. The unnamed prophet dies. And people blast him in the commentaries. He's an idiot. He is fooled. He, God judges him because he's a, he's a fool. None of that's true. I have the high view of the unnamed prophet. Are you surprised by that? I do not believe he was deceived at all. 1 Timothy 3. I don't believe the old prophet, and you can read ahead, there's an old prophet. I don't believe the old prophet fooled him one second. And I do not believe he was judged and condemned by God. I submit he knowingly went to his death and his body was put in the road. And so I have the body of the unnamed prophet laying in the road and it is not destroyed. So I could say it another way. It's laying in the road and it has not gone to corruption. It's laying there. The lion didn't touch it. How did he die? The lion killed him. How did the lion kill him? Without hurting the body in any way. So I have the body of the unnamed prophet lying in the road. I'm going to say it's pristine. There's no evidence, no wounds. It's just laying there. The lion killed him. I have, therefore, Moses' body, I have Adam's body, I have Christ's body, and I have the unnamed prophet's body, don't I? Of course I do. Next week, we'll tear into that.